Wild Lives by Phonographic. Hey, I'm Rochelle and welcome to Wild Lives by Phonographic. Today we're speaking to the legendary filmmaker and photographer Bob Talbot, whose films include the Oscar-nominated IMAX film called Dolphins and also one of my favourites, the freediving doco called Ocean Men Extreme Dive. Bob's also just finished his new immersive documentary called Being Dolphin 4D, which gives viewers a dolphin's eye view of life in the pod, and it's soon going to be shown in zoos, aquariums, theme parks, and all kinds of other venues all over the world. He's also worked on the life of Pi, Into the Blue, Free Willy, Flipper, and David Blaine's Drowned Alive show. It's quite a showreel. And Bob's portfolio of photos is equally impressive, with his work appearing in countless mags, including Time and National Geographic. As a wildlife lover, you've probably even hung one of his prints in your home at some point. Bob was in his 20s when his posters of whales and dolphins went global and they became the world's best-selling line of marine artwork. On top of all that, his TV work has taken him to Antarctica with Jacques Cousteau, to the Arctic with Sea Shepherd's Paul Watson, and his conservation efforts have earned him prestigious awards like the Environmental Hero Award by Vice President Al Gore and even the Seakeeper Award by Prince Albert of Monaco. Yeah, it's pretty fair to say that Bob has lived an incredible incredibly wildlife and we're stoked to have him with us today thank you so much for your time today bob we're thrilled to have you oh thanks for having me now you were born in california where you became a certified diver at the age of 13 then at 14 you went whale watching for the very first time why was that so special wow well my buddies and i that i started diving with we had this dream of seeing whales in the wild so and uh, we take this little inflatable boat and follow the whale watch boat out of uh, Dana Point in California. And it was really foggy day. We couldn't, we hardly could keep the whale watch boat in sight. And before long, we had lost them. So we cut the engine, and we could hear whales blowing all around us, but we couldn't see them. And so we sat there, and we we would start the engine and move towards the sound and cut the engine. It was like out of a movie, you know. Mm. And and then before we knew it, one surface right next to the boat, and his blow was like an explosion, scared the hell out of us. It was so humbling, that experience. But ironically, it kind of left me feeling more connected to the sea than ever before. Yeah, I know that might sound kind of strange, but there was something about being on that little rubber boat in the fog and having this huge animal right beside us that made the ocean feel very real to me. And at the same time, left me with this kind of overwhelming desire to share that feeling with everyone else. Hmm. In your early years, you were quite fascinated by the work of the legendary Jacques Cousteau, and in fact, later in your life, you got to work with him, which must have been amazing. But as a young diver, how did those kind of adventures inspire you at the time? Well, actually, it inspired me long before I started diving, because the first episode of Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau aired when I was like 10 years old. And though I was already interested in the ocean, you know, that ignited a flame in me that continues to this day. And not just me, millions around the world. You know, I, I think you can go to just about anybody that's spent their life in and on the ocean for the last 30 years, and in some way, you'll find that they were inspired by Cousteau. And I think that was because he was much more than an explorer. He was this, he was a consummate filmmaker, he was a poet, he was really a master communicator that captured the hearts and minds of millions of people. And, and it, it made it seem possible that, yeah, we could go out in the ocean and have these adventures and encounter these animals and maybe in some small way affect the way people look at them. 
So after you graduated high school, you and some friends loaded up that inflatable boat you mentioned before. You put it on the back of a Datsun, which in Australia we call a Datto, and you drove all the way to Canada. You went to Vancouver Island to shoot your encounters with orcas. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's funny the dumb things you do when you're young. So this guy I started diving with was named Tony Bernat. We met in junior high school and started diving. And from that time, we were obsessed with diving with orcas. But... You know, we our parents were driving us to the beach on the weekends to go diving, and we couldn't very well ask them for a ride up to the Pacific Northwest. And, and the idea of even mentioning to our parents that we wanted to jump in the water with an orca was kind of nutty. But by the summer of 77, we'd saved some dough, and, you know, we were 19 years old, and we thought, you know, let's go for it. So uh, we drove up to the Pacific Northwest with no idea exactly where we were going or what we would do once we got there. Now, keep in mind, this was long before the Internet, mm-hmm. so we didn't, and we didn't know a single person who had seen orcas in that area, much less dove with them. <laughs> uh, so it was, it was nutty. I, I kind of think sometimes about if one of my kids had asked to do that at that age, there's just like no way. You know? <laughs> <But> <laughs> anyway, we did. And in Tacoma, we met a guy named Mark Oberlin, who had spent some time in British Columbia with orcas. And so he joined us. He was our big expert, and he was the old man of the crew. I think he was 23 at the time. And we finally made our way to San Juan Island, uh, and that's where we met Dr. Ken Balcom, who was kind enough to take us out with him on one of his research boats for a couple of days. But we hit him in a dry patch, and we didn't see a single orca. So all along the way, this, this new guy, Mark, kept talking about a place called Alert Bay off northeastern Vancouver Island and about some treehouse built by another orca researcher named Paul Spong, Dr. Mm. Paul Spong. So at this point, we had burned through just short of half of our, our, our dough. We, we were just about out of money, uh, I mean, considering we had to get home. And now we were talking about committing to a series of ferry crossings and making our way up these logging roads at Vancouver Island to God knows where. <laughs> and so, of course, a sensible thing would have been to remain on San Juan Island and wait for the whales. And, uh, of course, we set off for Alert Bay. So once we got there, we launched Inflatable, and we just, gosh, I, I, I'm sure I have a picture of it somewhere, but this boat was barely floating under the weight of all our camera gear and, and camping gear, and we all kind of sat on top of this mound of stuff and headed out looking for this treehouse on Hanson Island. And, you know, it's for us at the time, just being there was amazing, you know, going through this maze of forest-covered islands and, you know, this salt water waterways where abundant was marine life on the edge of this great forested islands was just amazing and so eventually we got to Hanson Island and we got around this small point and there was this there's a little cove there and there above this rocky beach perched in the trees was was Spong's treehouse it was like out of a storybook you could hardly believe your eyes you know (laughs) it was pretty crazy and so we got inside a treehouse, and there was a little note that Paul had left to anyone who happened upon the place to uh, feel welcome to stay. And so we moved in. And we were probably there for just short of two weeks. We'd load up the boat every day, going out looking for orcas. And finally, one afternoon, we had a pod along the shoreline of Vancouver Island. And, of course, we were out of our minds with excitement, so much so that we could barely take a picture. And we finally got it together, and we hung out with the pod for a while and took a few photographs. And there was one that afternoon that I remember that kind of stood out was the orcas were lined up abreast of one another, and the sun was setting behind islands, so they had this nice, strong backlight, like a lot of the photographs I've been seeing you post lately. <laughs> and, and their blows were just illuminated by this backlight, which I know is you know, commonplace now, but then I just hadn't seen it. 
now. And, you know, I saw the shot. I was kind of bummed because it was overexposed and it wasn't very, you know, it wasn't composed very well, but it really made an impression. Mm. So anyway, so we had that afternoon and now we were on a mission to get in the water with these guys because we were running out of time. So we only had one other encounter with orcas the time we were there. And on that day, Mark had maneuvered the boat out in front of a pod and they approached and they approached and we thought, okay, they've gone past. And then just a short distance away, they surfaced again. And at this point I had my wetsuit on, but I didn't have any other gear on. And there was just no time. But I grabbed my mask and I pressed it against my face and just, you know, rolled off the side of the boat, holding on to the, the lifeline on there and peered off into this kind of murky green water. And then off in the distance, you see these white forms begin to appear, and you don't know if you're looking at heads or tails or what you're looking at. And a moment later, these two orcas appeared out of the murk and uh, were swimming past, which for me was the ultimate experience of my life at that point. Um, and then one turned and started swimming directly toward me. Now, you got to remember, this was in the 70s, and everything was kind of, there was a lot of kind of metaphysical, new age kind of things going on mm. in relation to whales and dolphins. And I remember one person had told me, you know, when you see them, don't put a camera in front of your face because it'll block your vibe. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing going on. And it was part of me to want to believe that these just, you know, gentle, sweet animals that like people. And then there was probably a part that was kind of, rising up from the limbic system saying, hey, that's a big predator heading towards you, and you're a meal, you know? <laughs> so I, I was a little indecisive. I was kind of pulling myself up and keep myself down and pulling myself up, and I finally, finally decided, oh, look, I'm staying. And he swam right up to me and kind of stopped and gave me this big eyeball and headed off on his way. And I was just excited as you can imagine getting back into the boat. We tried a couple more times that day. We we never got in position again. And so we headed back to the treehouse. And as we were going through Blackmeat Pass, where you have, you know, it's a narrow uh, passage with, the, you know, the big tide changes up there. You got a lot of whirlpools and a lot of debris. And we hit a log. We hit a log and busted the uh, lower unit on the outboard oh. and then got towed back to the treehouse by a fishing boat and had to wait several days for a... Um, little cabin cruiser full of drunk people to take us back to their bay. <laughs> what an adventure. So, yeah, it was something. Yeah, that's how the whole orca thing kind of started out. You actually went back to the Johnson Strait a couple of years later, and you got some great footage of orcas while you were there. But there was an unsettling moment there for you, wasn't there? Yeah. Yeah, there was, again, we were, I was trying to get an underwater shot of orcas, and I had this wind-up 15-millimeter Bolex camera. Uh, in a housing, and so I, I was on a, a point where the orcas came by pretty frequently, and then I kind of slipped into the bull kelp bed there and waited. And as these orcas approached, I snuck out, and this mother and calf swam by as I'm rolling, and wow, I'm getting a shot. And then they turned around, they came back, and wound up the camera, got another shot, and then off they went. And so we were pretty excited about that and worked our way up the island a little more and tried it again, and this time, uh, what looked like what I thought was the female that was later, we were later told was a juvenile male, which we later found out had a couple of calves, so who knows, uh, <laughs> um, started circling me and vocalizing and blowing bubbles. And so at first I thought, wow, this is great. You know, 
climbing and shooting and the whales coming up and you know right next to me i'm able to raise the camera and come out of water with them and go down i was having a great time and then i ran out of film so i thought well i should get back to the boat and see if i can reload and this, this whale's going to stick around well the orca had a different idea and he was like no no you're not going anywhere oh. <laughs> he would head me off at every at every turn and it was tightening in circles and getting closer and closer so at this point, I was getting a little worried, and it wasn't so much worried that, that it was a predation scenario. It was more just worried that I was going to be a toy. And finally, the whale stopped, and it, it just hung there in the water for a moment and made one final vocalization and took off. So, uh, wow. so uh, yeah, got back in the, in the Avon, and we headed over to Paul Spong's place to tell him, you know, what had happened. And he goes, oh, from the description of well, I said, oh, that's that's just Sharky. He messes around all the time. So, Sharky? Anyway. Yeah, yeah. It's all Sharky. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was on that very same day that you shot the footage that launched your film career, wasn't it? Well, it's funny. It was, it was on that day a lot of things happened. And, yeah, that footage actually got the attention of Captain Cousteau some years later and did have a lot to do with me kind of getting the film. Also that day on the way back, We'd gone to Paul's, we'd you know, had our conversation about Sharky, and we were heading back to camp. And at this point, you know, it's, it's the evening, these days are long in the summer up north, and everybody's pretty wiped out. And uh, we were heading across the straits, and it was one of those rare afternoons or evenings where it was just absolutely glass. It was, it was one of the glassiest days I think I've ever seen. And uh, we came upon a pot of orcas, and they were going parallel to the island, so they were back look beautifully with the island behind them and so we lined up and I was remembering that shot that I didn't quite get on our first trip and was you know determined to do it right this time mm. and knew that this was a pretty unique situation I wasn't going to have a lot of opportunities so um, we spent a few minutes with them and I shot a couple images that ended up being two of my first posters and that really kind of set the stage so mm. that whole day that one day was pretty much a milestone in my career, mm. as it turned out. Massive turning point. So orcas <laughs> really have had a massive impact on your life. Why do you think you've had this lifelong fascination with them? <sighs> well, you know, to me, they are like the pinnacle of evolution. You know, I, I see our planet as an ocean planet, and of all the creatures in the ocean, there are none that impress me more than orcas. And, you know, it's... I guess it has to do with their intelligence and that they maintain this highly evolved social order and at the same time are cunning predators, you know. So they mm -hmm. can be looking after each other in this very compassionate way and then, you know, you flip the switch and they go into the, the predator mode where they can be pretty ruthless mm -hmm. and very effective. So I guess it's that combination and that they did play such a big part of my early years and not to mention their form. I mean, they have such a striking form. Just to look at them, it's, a, it's like looking at an incredible piece of art. And so from a graphic standpoint, you just can't help but being attracted to them. Another animal that's played a big part in your life is the dolphin. In fact, you've just wrapped a new immersive short film called Being Dolphin 4D, which is about to hit screens all around the world. Again, why do dolphins intrigue you so much that you will make films about them? Well... Like orcas, it's, a lot has to do with their beautiful form, the validity of, of movement, 
and their overwhelming sense of oneness. You know, if, it, if you've been with dolphins, you know that a lot of the times, you know, they'll tolerate you and they'll give you a look and then they're gone. But at the same time, there are the rare occasions where you get to be kind of an invisible guest in the pod. And those times had been very striking to me. I'm overwhelmed with this feeling of kind of oneness that these guys have among each other. It's like, it's almost like being part of a single entity made up of separate, unique individuals. You know, this kind of a sense of unity that goes far beyond what I've ever experienced with humans. They've taken a different evolutionary path than we have. And while we're tribal and rely on each other, their reliance on each other goes so far beyond us. And that sense that they all kind of exist as one in the pod is, is pretty overwhelming and very attractive. And I don't know, it's that, that sense of family, I guess, that sense of safety they must feel within their pod. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah, definitely makes sense. One of your most famous photos, and it's one of my favourites of all time, is called Aquadine, and it features a dolphin riding the bow of a huge ship at the sunset. Can you tell us a little bit about that iconic shot and how you came to take it? Well, it's kind of funny because I'm often asked about that shot, and there's there's a lot of photographs that I've set out, well, I'll say a few photographs I've set out to get, you know, MacArthur, the, the tail, uh, dolphin tails is silhouette of dolphins, a particular composition. Well, I went out with the image in mind and just worked on that for weeks or months. With Aquadine, it was it was kind of funny because we had spent the day with dolphins off Southern California, and it was a really flat day. Conditions were beautiful. There were dolphins everywhere, but they wanted nothing to do with us. Oh. So they weren't bow riding. <laughs> they weren't grouping up. I don't think I'd shot a frame all day. Now, I guess about a year before, the guy I was on the boat with and I were out, and I shot another photograph of a dolphin bow riding uh, an oil tanker. And it was kind of highlight, and it was, you know, kind of a straightforward front-lit shot. Hmm. I was packing up my, the sun had set, I was packing up my gear down below, and my buddy who was on the boat that other day, the year before, started saying things like, oh, you should see these dolphins going crazy in front of this freighter. I'm like, yeah, 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 don't mess with me. You know? <laughs> you know? It's like, no, 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 really, all these dolphins are going crazy in front of this freighter. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, all right, see yourself. So I, you know, I come up, and sure enough, these dolphins are just like three and four at a time are launching off the front of this freighter. So we go racing over there, and uh, this is back in the days of film. And at the time, I would only shoot Kodachrome 64 because I needed to blow these things up, and mm. it's the only thing that really held up well. So uh, so I'm shooting ISO 64, manual, everything, and the only lens I had fast enough was my 85, I guess it was a 1.4 at the time, which requires to be much closer yeah. to that ship than I felt comfortable. In fact, we even tried reaching them on the radio and never got an answer. I mean, if, if we would have lost power, they would have probably not even felt the bump, you know? Oh. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, these dolphins kept bow riding, and I shot a few frames, and that particular shot was the dolphin on his way down, because at the apex of his jump, he was kind of in a goofy position, and he flattened out on his way down. But these guys were getting quite a ride off that freighter. But it, it was just right place at the right time. It wasn't anything that was planned. It's just magic. Whales <laughs> also feature heavily in your work. 
in fact, once you had a close call with a grey whale. Can you tell us about that? <sighs> yeah. Well, this was 85. Mm. And again, I was off Dana Point, not far from where I was at my first time seeing a, a grey whale. And we intercepted, uh, well, we heard a, a call on the, on the radio from a fisherman calling the Coast Guard about a grey whale entangled in the net. So we, we got his position and said we'd come out to help. And the Coast Coast said, great, thank you. And we got out there, and I jumped in the water, and there was a gray whale wrapped three times head to tail in a gill net with uh, a bunch of floats uh, gathered at the tail. It was Hideous. it was pretty horrible. Mm. I mean, this, this whale was, it was mummified by this, this net. It couldn't open its mouth. It could barely swim. So I, we... we got next to the fishing boat and the, the guy gave me a pole with a knife tape to it and said, knock yourself out. And I jumped back in and of course, well, nothing to do with that. He was trying to, trying to strike me with his tail moving sideways. And I thought, well, I'm in way over my head here. So, uh, I got on the radio and I, I called the Coast Guard and said, look, we, we need some help out here. Now at the time, there was no real protocol for whales being, you know, to rescue whales and nets. And we waited there probably three hours uh, while the Coast Guard tried to figure out what to do. And it turns out that one of the guys at the communication center knew a guy from a research facility there in Newport Beach, and they had a boat called the Westwind. So they set out to see what they could do. And they arrived on scene. I didn't know any of these guys. They jumped in the water with just wetsuits and, and knives. And I had a little pony bottle that I would use a lot of time with cetaceans. So I, I had the pony ball on in my Nikona, so I started out taking pictures. And then I thought, well, since I got this little pony ball on, I can stay down with the whale when it dives. It dive down 20, 30 feet and then come back up. And I can just keep working, which was not bright. Mm-hmm. So, so I handed my camera up. I got a knife. I, I hung on to the whale, and there was some polypropylene line that was kind of hard to get through, and I kept sawing away as the whale dove, and I realized the whale was getting a little agitated because I was staying with it, so I went to back away and got a couple of feet off the whale and then was slammed back against them, and I realized I was, all this time there was a big loom of net below the whale that was drifting up over my back while it dove, and it was tangled in my tank pretty bad. So, of course, the whale became more agitated and started shaking me around like a rag doll, and I became more entangled, and... Then the whale surfaced, and the fellows from the other boat were across the whale from me. Now, at this point, I'm kind of embarrassed because I didn't know these guys. So I, I didn't want to make a big deal, and I said, hey, guys, I, I got a little problem here, you know. And then the, the whale dove again, and I stuck my regular back in my mouth, and down we went. Now, this time, the whale was really upset and was just trashing me. And so the next time I came up, I was, I was tangled pretty badly. I was just able to get my head up enough to, to for the only time in my life ever, utter the word help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just so it was very clear that things were not going well. And it was kind of funny because there was a lifeguard boat there that had come out out of Dana Point. And neither of those guys got in the water. In fact, later they told me that when they saw me with the net over my head, mm-hmm. they were sure that I wasn't getting out of that alive and they weren't about to risk their lives for nothing. Wow. Um, I guess it looked pretty dire from the third person's perspective as well. Long story short, this went on, and I won't go through all the details, but it, it ended with one of the gentlemen, uh, a guy named Chuck Mitchell, 
tank, and it was it was it was quite a struggle. I put this piece of neoprene over the shoulder strap because it was digging in my wetsuit, which made it impossible for me to get the thing undone. Note to self: don't ever do that again. Um, and uh, so Chuck was, you know, working hard to get this thing off of me, and I didn't know when I was going to run out of air. My head was underwater most of the time at this point. Um, so finally, he gets the thing off, and I surface, and I was so relieved. And the, the lifeguard boat was right there. And I, as a whale dove, I felt this tug on my legs. And I just looked at my, my fins, and they went something, said something to the effect that, well, screw your fins. And I'm like, I'm not worried about my fins. <laughs> I'm tangled. And I took a breath, and down I went. Mm-hmm. And this is whale dove. And at this point, I was completely winded, so I didn't, I didn't have a lot of gas in the tank. And I was able to get out of the one fin, but with the other leg was, was wrapped, the, the polypro was wrapped around my calf, and I was, there was nothing I could do. And this guy, Chuck Mitchell, who I never met, who I didn't know, risked his life by taking a breath and swimming down and cutting me loose. So that was the end of that. Some days later, that whale was spotted up the coast with my tank weight belt, and I, I don't remember, I think it was my mask, still uh, in the net as it swam by. I can only imagine what those guys must have been thinking. I, I don't think that whale survived. And The real takeaway from the story, though, was that it became a big news story, but the news story wasn't that a whale was tangled in the net. The news story was that this idiot that was trying to help the whale got tangled in the net. And I found that pretty distressing at the time because I pushed very hard to get the idea across about we have a problem here. We gotta be thinking about these inshore gill nets and, and what's going on. And you know, it, it just wasn't the story. But since then, you know, it, it has become more of a story, but the fact remains that the nets are still there all these years later. The fact remains that we have a huge problem with well entanglements here in a national marine sanctuary in Monterey Bay. Mm. So it's, um, it's a little distressing. It's a very addressable problem, especially here in Monterey Bay because we're primarily crab traps and the simple solution, you just don't set crab traps when mm. you have pumpback whales here. But again, fishing community seems to have a pretty strong lobby and we have to be able to get past that. Same problem happens here as well. We just recently had an entanglement just off Sydney Harbour where a whale was caught for hours with a fish trap attached to it. And friends of mine actually did what they could to free it because authorities couldn't get there in time and they were able to get a little bit off of the fish trap. But um, unfortunately, they couldn't get all of it off before it turned dark and then the whale just ended up having to go with it still partially on. Uh, Um, Yeah, that happens so often. It's awful. It's really distressing because people are trying to help them. But then at the same time, you've got people setting fish traps right in the peak of the migration. Like, can you not just wait until the whales have gone? It's not that hard. You know, I, I spent quite a few years on the board of uh, Sea Shepherd. Here you had you had folks out on the high seas risking their lives to you know combat illegal whaling, and it just seems crazy to me when you have that going on, and at the same time, in countries where we seem to be fairly protective of whales, we allow so many whales to be killed with bycatch mm. and the fishing gear, and you know there are a lot of there are a lot of ocean issues that are not simple. Most of them aren't. Most of them don't have a clear-cut solution. This is one that does. Mm. And anyway, that is that story. 
Bob's short documentary called One Breath showcases his passion for Monterey Bay in California. It's an area so rich in marine life that it's been called the Serengeti of the sea, with 180 species of bird, 500 types of fish and more than 30 different species of mammal. For a long time, the wildlife in the area was in decline, but after the sardine industry shut down in the 1950s, the animals started coming back. And in 1992, the Monterey Bay Marine Sanctuary was established. Today, it encompasses 6,094 square miles, or nearly 16,000 square kilometres of ocean, making it one of the most important protected areas in the United States. With its huge underwater canyon and sprawling kelp forests, it's an important area for humpbacks, grey whales, orcas, as well as the biggest animal on the planet, the blue whale. The sanctuary is also famous for its sea otters, elephant seals and dolphins. Tell us, why is Monterey Bay so special? Well, it's, you know, it's a hub for marine life. We have this submarine canyon and we get a lot of upwelling and that upwelling brings a lot of critters to the surface and that just sparks the food chain here. So at any given moment, I can be looking out my window and seeing a humpback or an otter or those dolphins or any number of, you know, bird species. Mm. It's a pretty amazing place. And for all its problems, we still have a lot of things we need to deal with here. It's one of the few stories of hope. It's one of the few places that's better now than it was 200 years ago. Now, again, you got to keep in mind perspective and context, right? You know, there was a time here in Monterey Bay where people used to complain about the stench of whales' breath. There were so many whales in the bay. And though we have a lot of whales now, it's nothing compared to what we once had. But still, it's a success story. You know, elephant seals were all but gone. And they've come back. Otters were all but gone. In fact, they were thought to be extinct, and they've come back. So it shows that the sea can be very resilient. And when we decide to protect a spot, it can heal. Yeah, I'm sure there's a number of places like that around the world that I'm not aware of. This is one that I happen to, you know, had the opportunity uh, to, to visit and finally live at. And so I feel pretty lucky to be here. And I look out the window every day and go, okay, you know, stick with the fight because it's, it's worth it. It can, mm. it can change. Things can change. Your commitment to conserving marine environments is legendary. Can you tell us how can the everyday person actually help to make a difference? Well, you're opening a can of worms here, Michelle. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a discouraging fight, fighting for the environment and fighting for the marine environment in particular because to most people, it's all out of sight, right? Mm-hmm. You look out at the ocean and it looks the same in a healthy place than it does in a place that's been pretty ravaged, you know, mm-hmm. um, short of, you know, visible pollution like plastic and, and whatnot. And for most of my life, I've been very frustrated struggling with the the notion of why we do this. Why can people be so immune to what they're seeing every day? And it, it took me a long time to realize that from an evolutionary standpoint, we're doing exactly what we're supposed to do. Given enough time, our brains evolve to a point that we can have this impact on our environment and our psyche is such that we're kind of short-term creatures. We're not really programmed to think long-term from an instinctive perspective. So we 
do what a lot of other animals do. We take all the taken is good, and, you know, we take what we can take when we can get it. So acknowledging that doesn't really solve the problem, but maybe it gives us a different way of looking at things. Mm. It, you know, I, I tend to be a pretty judgmental guy, and I get pretty fired up when I see things happening to animals, but I had to temper that and understand what's going on behind it and understand what's effective. And going head-to-head with people and saying, I'm right and you're wrong, is not effective today. It used to be, but it's not anymore. You know, it's part of our nature to resist change. And when people have come up in in an environment where they see things a certain way, to simply say, you're wrong and I'm right, when with every ounce of their being they believe they're right, tends to be counterproductive. So I've come to a point where I've had to ask myself, do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? If I want to be right, then I have to acknowledge it's all about me. If I want to be effective, then maybe I'm being more altruistic and I'm thinking about something outside myself. So I think we need to be looking at these issues from a perspective of how can we work with people that are doing things that we find counterproductive to the environment or the ocean where without judging them, we can come to conclusions and come to to solutions that everyone can live with and that moves us in the right direction. It may not be where we want to be. It may not be what we feel is completely right, but it's a lot better than where we are now. And I hope we can do this. And that we need to go after issues that are addressable. There, there are certain areas in the world where you have people that are impoverished, that are thinking about getting through life day by day, their next meal, uh, whether they're going to be blown to bits by God knows what. They don't have the luxury that we have to be thinking about the environment or be thinking about other species or health for that matter, thinking about other people. That's a luxury we have. You know, you've got to be in a pretty good spot to be thinking about some other species. So we're fortunate to have that luxury, but we have to also recognize that there are people around the world that don't. And that in some of these areas, these the issues that are facing those areas may not be the most addressable issues that we have in front of us. I feel very strongly that we need to go after what we can do and be the most effective at first. So I, I think these local efforts are hugely important. Again, I live in a place where local efforts has transformed this day. Um, at the same time, I think we need to keep our eye on the bigger picture because those local efforts will be dwarfed by the global impact we have on things and that we need to look at those issues realistically and with an open mind and with a different perspective than we have in the past. Hmm. Did I say too much? No, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think you raise a really great point in that just the way that we need to shift our thinking and it's not an us and them thing anymore, it's all of us and we need to widen our thinking but also start with exactly what we can affect change with right here and now personally. So I think it's a very valid point. Well, it's, it's certainly not a simple issue. And mm. again, we've we've got here because of our nature. You know, we've got here because of what we've evolved to be. And I think at this point, it's not a matter of what we should do, 
but it's a matter of what we want to do. Mm-hmm. We, can, we can take the shit out of it. We can say, you know what? We're doing exactly what we're supposed to do giving the, the course of evolution. Now the question is, with this highly evolved brain, do we want to make a decision to do something different? Hmm. I feel like I could talk to you for hours, and <laughs> I probably would if I didn't <laughs> I have to go to your ear for hours. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Bob. You're a legend. It's been awesome to talk to you. And um, Thank you. Definitely have to have you back in another time, especially when your new website is launched and we can talk through all your incredible photos again. That'd be cool. Yeah. That'd be great. In the meantime, thank thank you you so much. Thanks for listening. Now, if you'd like to stay abreast of all of Bob's adventures, do check out his Instagram account at Bob Talbot Photography. And keep an eye on that because soon enough he'll be posting info about his brand new website. Remember, for more wildlife news, travels and photography in the meantime, head to Fornographic.com and I'll catch you next time. Wild Lives by Fornographic. Follow us on Omni.fm or search for Wild Lives by Fornographic on iTunes. Subscribe today and you'll never miss an episode.